Thank you very much. All right, well, today, if you would, turn to Exodus 23. And I'd like to look at a strange verse today in light of the strange times we live in. It is truly interesting, uh, the days in which we live. There's that Chinese proverb that says, may you live in interesting times, which is a curse, not a word of encouragement. And we do live in interesting times. Obviously, we're celebrating Mother's Day today. And one of the things that is clear in our country right now is that motherhood is under attack and womanhood is under attack in various ways. And Martin Luther was one who said, uh, good soldiers, when they see the enemy attacking on the right side of the fort, do not run to the left side. They go to the right side of the the fort. They go to the point at which uh, the enemy is attacking. And so today on this Mother's Day, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go to the point at which the enemy is attacking, attacking our society in general and the church in particular with regard to womanhood and motherhood and try to encourage us. Um, Obviously, there's a lot going on just recently. Uh, You've got the Supreme Court leak in which the Supreme Court appears to be uh, leaning toward reversing Roe uh, v. Wade, and that has a lot of people upset, a lot of protesting. In fact, a lot of churches are being protested in front of this day, as well as the Supreme Court justices' own homes. You've got recently a Supreme Court nominee who hasn't started serving yet, who has been approved, but during the nominee process, she was asked to uh, give a definition of a woman. And for whatever reason, she was reluctant to answer the question, uh, how would you define a woman? We've got, um, even in uh, language that the government is beginning to use, they're replacing the term mother with birthing people. So there's all kinds of interesting things happening. In fact, um, USA Today, uh, their woman of the year for this year was a man who identifies as a woman, uh, not a woman. And so there are so many things that are attacking the traditional view of womanhood and motherhood. And so it's important as Christians, especially since Uh, The New Testament talks a lot about the importance of um, the home and the family and motherhood with regard to a faithful Christian life. And so there are common roles, roles which are common to believers and unbelievers, uh, that God calls us to live a certain way and to think about in a certain way for his glory and for the good of others. So obviously the question when you think about all these different Uh, cultural issues and motherhood and and womanhood. For us as Christians, and really for all of us, the question should be, what does God think about this? What does God think about all these things? And the only way we can know is through the Bible, because the Bible is God's word. And so we look to the scriptures to give us some help. Uh, It says in Romans 12 that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so it's very easy for us to go with the flow. And if culture is going in a certain way with regard to women and mothers and all kinds of things like that, that it's very easy for us as the church to go that way as well, unless we're committed to revelation and not just being consistent with the culture. And so I want to encourage us uh, to think about this this morning. 
uh, recognize that whenever you talk about these kinds of things, uh, somebody will probably disagree and it may not come across uh, as a, a good thing. But I'm hoping that if we understand the spirit of what the Bible is saying, it's telling us what the true path is to real freedom and real joy, not trying to keep women from freedom and joy. And so I hope it comes across that way as we read God's word and look at what he has to say about these things. In Exodus 23, verses 14 through 19, I want to read this passage and then I want to focus especially on verse 19. And this will be uh, your uh, Mother's Day verse for this year. All right, verse uh, 14 of Exodus 23. It says, uh, Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. This is God speaking. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the appointed time in the month Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Also you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. This is the word of God. And what I want to focus on is the last part of verse 19, which says you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Uh, God actually repeats that command two other times in the Old Testament. If you look at Exodus 34, he repeats it there. If you look in Deuteronomy 14, he repeats it there. In every case, it's in the context of eating. In the first two cases, it's in the context of eating and celebration to the Lord during the feast days. Uh, In the last reference, it's in regard to eat this and not that with regard to clean and unclean animals. So in all three contexts, we have eating. And eating is about feeding and it's about nurturing or nourishing um, people. And so people have wrestled with what in the world uh, did God have in mind when he commanded the children of Israel not to do this. Well, obviously it's very clear on the surface that he does not want them to uh, take a young kid, a young goat, and boil that goat in the milk of its mother and then eat it. And so the question is why? And there have been all kinds of ideas about why because the Bible doesn't come right out and tell us. And so uh, there have been ideas like, well, in the context, it's talking about first fruits. So maybe it's the idea of um, offer God your best and not your second best. Others have thought it was simply an issue of cruelty. It's cruel to do something like that. Others thought uh, you should uh, not take a, a young kid or a young goat before it's been weaned. So it's a matter of timing. Others have thought that it showed a contempt for the parent-child relationship. Others 
uh, thought it was just uh, about lactose intolerance. It's about uh, digestion issues. Others have seen it as a uh, culinary science issue that, you know, it's uh, God, God wants you to cook with olive oil and, and not butter or something like that. Uh, some have thought that it was a matter of not being too luxurious or epicurean in your cooking, you know, more simple uh, cooking, no extravagance. Some have taken it totally metaphorically as be careful of false teaching. Well, there are others who um, would relate it to another command in the Bible that Paul actually uses in the New Testament to encourage a very uh, practical um, support of gospel ministry. Uh, That other command is, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So when the ox is doing his work of threshing, you should allow him to eat while he's doing it. You should not put a muzzle on him him and keep him from eating the grain or whatever it is he's working on. Paul takes that and he says in 1 Corinthians 9, um, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Not simply concerned about oxen. Obviously, God does have a concern for oxen, but he goes on to talk about the fact that you ought to pay the preacher. He takes that verse and says you ought to support um, gospel ministry. That the, he, he says in 1 Timothy 5, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And he quotes that verse twice in both of those contexts. And so there's a very practical issue and there's a principle involved. And that's the way a lot of people will take this. Uh, if you read your ESV study Bible, of all the various ways you could take it, those are the two that are mentioned. Uh, they will mention the fact that there was the practical side of actually doing it um, because it was associated with pagan rituals. And what uh, some pagans would do is that they would boil the kid and the goat of its mother, and then they would take it and they would sprinkle it on, on their fields and on their trees and on their plants, and it was a fertility rite. It was a way of trying to superstitiously... Uh, pursue fruitfulness. And God says, uh, don't adopt pagan rites for fruitfulness. Trust me, do what I tell you to do, and trust me to make your fields produce and to be fruitful in those kinds of things. And I think that's definitely uh, part of it. But I think there's also a principle involved here, and the ESV highlights this other view as well, and that the, the principle is the idea, this is the way they put it, it is a gross violation of the natural order. The young goat should drink its mother's milk and gain life from it, not be cooked in it. And so there's the practice and the principle of don't follow the pagan pagan practice and recognize that you should follow this principle of that which gives life should not be used to bring death. So something that's been designed to be life-giving should not be death-dealing. It's a principle that can be used in a lot of different ways. Um, We think about uh, the uproar over the Supreme Court leak and the idea that Roe versus Wade might be overturned. And uh, there have been protesters who've said things about that, like it's shocking and devastating to see white Christian fascists decide what women can do with their bodies. Or to say abortion is a human right and forced birth is a crime against humanity. It's a fundamental freedom 
as a people. So there are people who are championing, championing um, abortion as a right and as necessary for the freedom of women, necessary for the joy and happiness of women, and a terrible, shocking devastation to, to oppose. There are those who've actually taken Ezekiel 23:19 and have related it to the abortion uh, debate by saying, should the womb be a place of death? Should that which is designed to give life take life? And so that's a legitimate question, is whether or not that should be happening in our society. And as Christians, we would say, no, it shouldn't be happening. Should we be indifferent to the kinds of things that um, tempt people to do that, the kind of hopelessness they feel, the kind of difficulties that they know that they're going to be facing? We should not be indifferent to that. We should be compassionate and loving and want to try to help uh, women in those circumstances. And that's why we support pregnancy centers and those kinds of things who not only encourage women to have their babies, but to support them in light of all the difficulties around it. But the difficulty of something does not mean uh, it justifies uh, ending the pregnancy. And so um, that's what we're facing in this country is is an attack on the issue of uh, motherhood in that way, but also in other ways as well. Um, what is a woman? Um, like I said, uh, in the recent, um, I guess this was the fiscal year budget that the White House came out with, they replaced the word mothers with birthing people. Um, there are those who are who identify as women but aren't women who who want to somehow um, reenact the birthing process and, and be mothers and those kinds of things. Um, and so we just have this big debate over motherhood and who can be a mother and who is a mother and what that means and all those sorts of things. The Oxford Dictionary says a woman is an adult female human being. Um, and they define female as an animal that can lay eggs or give birth to babies. So the idea of motherhood and the capacity for motherhood is very much related to the idea of, of womanhood as well, that it distinguishes females from males. Um, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court nominee was asked to define a woman, and she said she can't. And they asked her, why can't you do that? She said, I can't in this context. I'm not a biologist. And um, she went on to basically say, I think what she was saying was, I don't want to define it because it will impact the, the decisions I will make on the Supreme Court. Because she knew that there was no uh, agreement at this point on how to define a woman. And she knows um, as a more progressive uh, thinker, that the definition of woman has to change in order to justify certain things. And so she, I think, um, probably had a definition in her mind, but she realized that that probably wouldn't be the place to make that known. And so that's where we are in, in a society where um, 
the controversy over what a woman is and whether or not motherhood is a good thing is raging all around us. So if I, trying to think from a biblical perspective, was going to define woman, I would say women are beautiful, life-nurturing image bearers of God. And that's what I want us to think about as we just touch on a few scriptures here this morning that are meant to help us think about that and use some categories. The first category is the category of equal or equality. A woman, first of all, should be thought of and considered as equal to man or man's equal. Um, It says in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image. And then it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Which means the image of God that God created was in both male and female. That God intended to reveal himself through both men and women. So that both are made in the image of God. Both are equal in that respect. And therefore, women are not inferior to men. The Bible does not teach the inferiority of women. That is not true at all. Both are made in the image of God. And even when you hear the Bible talk about um, believers, those who are a part of the church, it emphasizes the fact that both men and women are fellow heirs of life. It says in Galatians 3, there is neither male nor female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in 1 Peter 3, the husbands are encouraged to show their wives' honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So that uh, men and women in the body of Christ are equal heirs, equally children of God, equal in respect and honor. Uh, They are not inferior second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. And so it's very important that we acknowledge and we think about the fact that God does not uh, encourage us to think about um, the relationship between men and women and male and female as being uh, some kind of competition or some kind of, um, you know, a superior male uh, portion of the race um, as opposed to the inferior portion of the race. Now, that's typically... Uh, and often how it's characterized, that people will say that's what the Bible does. It argues for that, but it's not true. In Acts 2, uh, God says that both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, that he puts his spirit on and in both men and women. And indeed, God honored uh, women as the first ones who saw the risen Christ, Mary Magdalene. And the other women were the first ones to see the risen Christ. That was an honor uh, to them that that took place. And so it's very important that we realize that we live in a society where they're going to argue that Christianity uh, basically says women are inferior. And the Bible does not say that. Now, the second category is different. A woman is man's complement, different in a profoundly good way. The Bible does say that men and women are equal but different. And the problem is that we think different means unequal. We just assume that if everybody's not exactly the same, 
That means there's an inferiority type thing going on. If we don't play the same roles, don't do the same things, don't have the same um, opportunities or whatever, then there's some uh, statement about the value, the worth, the um, the status of that person, the inferiority of that person, and it's not true. Um, the Bible actually talks in a way that it, it says that the son, in a sense, is uh, in submission to the father in the Godhead. Does that mean that um, they're unequal? Does that mean that the son isn't as much God as the father is God? No. It means there are some differences in the roles they play, but they're both fully God. And so it's the same way between men and women. And the first thing is to highlight that there are obvious physical differences between men and women. Uh, All of us know that. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, God makes man out of the dirt and he makes woman out of the man. And it says, uh, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man. It doesn't say God um, duplicated uh, a second man. The word for fashion there is built. He took something out of the man and built something similar and yet different. And Adam recognizes the wonderful similarity, because it wasn't another animal that he couldn't relate to, so there's a wonderful similarity and yet a glorious difference between the two. And Adam was thoroughly excited about the difference between uh, him and Eve. And that's the way we should look at it as well. It's interesting in 1 Peter 3, uh, it says, your husband, excuse me, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Now, I'm going to talk in a few minutes about what that means, but just note the fact that it's making a, a distinction between men and women, husbands and wives, and that if husbands don't recognize that, they cannot love their wives like they should. And he goes on to say, uh, honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. You will actually be hindered in your prayer life if you don't recognize the difference between you and your wife in the appropriate way so that it results in an appropriate honor of her. In fact, in the Bible, it talks about man's clothing and women's clothing and that men should not wear women's clothing and men should not wear women's clothing. Um, just highlights the difference between the two that God desires that we maintain. Um, The difference between men and women is established at birth. It tells us in Psalm 139, for you you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God in the womb of the mother weaves the person to be exactly what he desires that little boy or that little girl to be, that they might grow up to be adult men and women. God in the womb makes the difference between the design for his glory. Um, And obviously, as we've already said, the Bible talks about the fact that women give birth. Mary gave birth to the baby Jesus. Uh, Women nurse, um, just like... um, We see the mother of Moses nursing him uh, on the behalf of Pharaoh's daughter. And yet uh, the Bible makes it very clear that we as men uh, 
Don't do those things. It even says in Jeremiah 30, ask now and see if a male can give birth. And the answer is no, he can't give birth. There is a difference. And in our society, we want to just um, level everything. We, we want to ignore obvious differences because we're so afraid that um, differences automatically imply inferiority and uh, mistreatment and those kinds of things. Now, can someone see the difference and, and mistreat women? Yes. Uh, the abuse of women historically has been great, and it should not be the case. You can look at other religions. In the Muslim religion, their view of women is much lower than what you will actually find in the Bible. And uh, it's, it's not unusual for that to be the case around the world in many, many cultures. But it's not what the Bible teaches, and, that, and therefore it's not what God says is really true. Now, getting back to 1 Peter 3, that women are called weaker vessels, what does that mean? It says in uh, 3.7, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, or as the weaker vessel, as some uh, translations put it, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. It's interesting, if you read Proverbs 31, it talks about the strength of the woman. It doesn't talk about the weakness of the woman. It says in Proverbs 31:25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. Which means First uh, Peter 3 is not saying that women are weak in every way. It's talking about weak in certain ways that men need to recognize, that husbands need to recognize, so that they can honor them appropriately. There are ways in which women and wives are stronger than men and husbands. And we men can be thankful for that. We should be thankful for that. And we'll get to that in a minute when we talk about uh, the woman being the helper. Um, The basic point is that historically, uh, the temptation of fallen man is to exploit the weakness of the woman and to take advantage of that in various ways. And what kind of weaknesses might they exploit? Uh, Physical weakness, like overpowering a woman and mistreating her. Or um, just abusing women and trying to manipulate them and control them through that physical force because the man is stronger. Not in every case, but in many cases. We have the current uh, issue over transgender athletes got men identifying as women and demolishing all the records of women and defeat in uh, winning all the races that they're uh, competing in against women. Uh, why is that? Because there is a physical difference between men and women. It's not fair for that to be taking place. And that's why um, people are rising up and beginning to oppose that. Now, that, does that mean that every single man can... Uh, outswim every, outswim every single woman? No, not at all. But it is arguing that as a general rule, men tend to be stronger than women, and that's not intended to be a bad thing in terms of physical uh, conditions or physical realities. But there's also um, uh, emotional weakness that must be referenced here too. And I hope this doesn't sound like a negative thing, 
But the actual context of that verse, the, the two verses right before it say this, For in this way in former times the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. One of the ways that men can um, not honor women uh, beyond uh, not respecting the physical differences is not to respect the emotional differences that can can be there. And one of the emotional differences can be and often is uh, the temptation to fear. And men can despise that rather than being uh, compassionate and patient and loving. So that when their wife comes to them and says, I'm afraid, I'm not real comfortable with this, you just write it off and say, oh, don't worry about it, it would be fine. Uh, You shouldn't be such a scaredy cat or anything like that. So in the context, the issue of fear is highlighted in the discussion of women submitting to men who aren't godly. That fear in that kind of relationship, fear in a relationship where you don't have a perfect husband. And what does Peter say? Live with your wife in an understanding way. You are an imperfect husband. And she may be afraid that you don't know what you're doing because many times you don't know what you're doing. And so live with your wife in an understanding way and um, realize that there's a reason why we typically uh, think of women as screaming We don't usually typically think of men as screaming, but screaming out in fear. There's that association. Now, what I'm simply saying is that these aren't always the true in every woman's life or every situation, but there are things that seem to be highlighted in this context that says, husbands, if you're going to love your wives, you need to realize that uh, women are going to be tempted to... uh, to sin in certain ways, just like you as a man are going to be tempted to sin in certain ways. And in order to love someone, you need to understand what those temptations might be. In Proverbs 12, it says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. A crown is a very precious thing. A crown can also be a very uh, delicate thing. And so another aspect of what's going on in talking about weaker vessels is a pitcher, if you had a $50,000 uh glass vase. It's worth $50,000. You probably wouldn't chunk it in the back of your car and hope that it just stayed intact. You would handle it with care because it was very valuable. And that's what Peter is saying. You need to look at your wives as being fragile in certain ways, but even their fragileness is part of their preciousness and that you need to handle them with care. You need to love them in an understanding way. You don't just toss them in the back of the trunk and drive down the road at 80 miles an hour and expect them not to be broken. And so um, if we fail to recognize the differences between men and women, we will not love well. And that's the... That's the um, insanity of sin because we do have women in our country who don't want those kinds of things to be acknowledged. And they think they will be loved better if they're not acknowledged. 
And it's a lie from the pit of hell. They will not be loved better if men don't recognize that. If we just send all our women into combat, we'll let you go into combat, we'll stay home. We'll let you do all the hard things, we'll stay home. That's not going to be good for them or our country in various ways. And so the recognition of differences is not being mean-spirited, it's not being uh, chauvinistic, it's actually being loving. And that's what the Bible argues for in so many different ways. And obviously the difference also beyond maybe some physical differences, maybe some emotional temptation differences, there are also role differences. And obviously we we see that um, in Genesis 2 because God uses uh, language that implies that uh, Adam is all alone. And God says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I will make him a helper, which implies that there's a role that the woman is to play that will be a blessing to the man or the husband. And so we can see this very clearly in terms of what the Bible says about how home life should look and how church life should look. And so if you read in Ephesians 5, it talks about the fact that wives are to be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Now, for the husband to be the head of the wife implies a certain role, and for the wife to respect that role uh, implies a certain role. It ends that chapter by saying the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Does that mean that her husband has to be respectable? Or her husband may not be respectable. So what is she to respect? Respect the role that he is intended to play in her life. And so there's an emphasis in the Bible about uh, the importance of roles, which is being um, steamrolled in our country. Uh, We don't want to acknowledge that there are different roles. Uh, In the church, if you read in 1 Timothy 2, it says, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then he goes on to say, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, the whole context of that is elders are to be men in the church. They are to play that role. When he brings in the whole issue of women being preserved for the bearing of children, he's highlighting the fact that that faith in Christ should result in us embracing the roles that God has given us. And the role of women is to have babies and to be mothers. It doesn't mean that every woman will have a baby and be a mother, but it means that is, in general, the way it works. And so saving faith embraces the roles that God calls us to take, whether as men or women. Part of the reason, I would say probably a big part of the reason in general, and even in the church, we struggle with the issue of roles is because we don't do our roles very well. That's what's behind Genesis 3.16 when it says, God is talking to the woman after the fall. He says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, God is talking about the consequences of the fall. He's not talking about uh, this is the way of blessing for you guys. Even though God works things together for our good, he's talking about this is a negative impact of the fall. 
that you will desire to be the head of your husband and he will rule over you in a very unloving way. Apart from redemption in Christ, apart from the grace of God, that left to ourselves, men and women would be uh, worse off than they already are. But as God removes his hand of grace, we see more and more uh, of that. We see men disrespecting and uh, abusing women, and we see women uh, wanting to basically play a role that God never intended for them to play. And in both cases, both the men and the women are pursuing slavery and misery, not freedom and happiness. Well, I'm going to have to move along quickly here. Ultimately, uh, the woman is to be a nurturer, a giver and a sustainer of life. Uh, A nurturer is someone who uh, nourishes, feeds, uh, supplies nourishment, helps in the development of a child. Um, It says in 1 Thessalonians 2, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Now, Paul is saying as an apostle and the apostolic team in loving the people in the church at Thessalonica, they were acting like mothers in caring for those believers. And how does he describe motherhood? He describes it as being gentle, uh, like a nursing mother who tenderly cares for her own children, being well pleased to impart uh, to you not only what you need, but our very lives. It's the picture of tender, sacrificial care. Tender, sacrificial care. That's what God intends to be pictured in women in motherhood, is tender, sacrificial care. And obviously, you can, that can be overwhelming at times, and you can um, have to fight the temptation to resent all the sacrifice that it takes to be a good mother. And yet sacrifice is at the heart of it because it is meant to picture uh, the God who gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. There's a story in 1 Kings 3 about two prostitutes who come to Solomon. And the situation is they both had children just days apart. Uh, They go to bed one night and they wake up. One child is dead. The other child is still alive. And uh, the woman Mother who sees her child dead looks and realizes that's not my child. And she realizes that the other woman has gotten up in the middle of the night after having laid on her child and switched the babies. And so they go to Solomon and Solomon says, okay, both of you say this child is your child. This is what we're going to do. Bring me a sword. And so Solomon says, we're going to cut the child in half. and Both of you get a part. Well, the mother who wasn't the mother of the child says, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. The mother who was truly the mother said, no, please don't do that. Let her have the child. That mother said, because she was in her right mind, I would rather give up my child than to see my child murdered. That's a word to our society. It is a word to our country in various ways because it is really a a judgment on a people when 
women sacrifice their children. It actually is described in Lamentations 4. Lamentations is all about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. It says the hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. It is judgment on a society, on a people, when women sacrifice their own children for themselves. That's why the abortion debate is so important, because it speaks to a spiritual issue that is very, very grave. Obviously, there's so much more to be said. Motherhood is very important and yet very challenging, as we've touched on. Um, We could talk more about the issue of women in the larger society. Um, I would just simply say that if you read uh, some of the things that the Bible says about For instance, Deborah in the book of Judges, how she was a leader in Israel, but she was a leader in Israel during a time of apostasy and that she told um, Barak to do something to lead the army in battle. And he said, I won't do it unless you uh, come with me. And she said, "Okay," uh, but a woman's going to receive the honor for it. If you read stories like that, you realize that that God may raise up women to lead in certain ways, but. Sometimes, maybe many times, that's the result of men not doing what they ought to be doing. So that it's a a case of both judgment and mercy. Deborah was a mercy to Israel at that time. And yet, she even acknowledged to Barak that you're not stepping up like you ought to step up. And so we can say a lot more about that. I'm running out of time, so I can't. But it's simply to say that God has called women to help in all kinds of ways, and Deborah was a help to Israel in that situation, which brings me to the idea that a woman is a helper, but she's a helper in the sense of being indispensable. She's not a maid. She's not somebody that just does what men don't want to do. The word for help, helper in Genesis chapter 2 means one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the one helped. And if us as men and husbands are honest, we need a lot of help. And women and mothers are the help. Many times we pray, God, help me. And God says, look over there. Look at the woman I've given you. Uh, She is a big part of that help. Actually, in Psalm 54, it says, behold, God is my helper. To talk about women being helpers isn't degrading any more than it's degrading to say that God is my helper. It acknowledges the fact that there are things that we need that we cannot supply on our own, and God has to help us. In the same way, women and mothers do that for men and husbands. It tells us that women are gifted members of the body of Christ. Homemaker is another broad category that we could say a lot about. Um, Titus 2 talks about the responsibility. There it talks about older women training younger women so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. This doesn't mean women can't work outside the home. You have to put this passage alongside Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31, that woman... uh, 
does all kinds of things. She brings food from afar. She considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She ministers to the poor. She makes linen uh, garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. And yet in the midst of it all, she looks well to the ways of her household. So that to say um, a woman's place is in the home is not true. A woman's priority is the home if she's a wife and mother, but it doesn't mean she just ought to stay home, be barefoot, and have babies. And obviously for women who are not married, then there's all kinds of ways that those gifts can be used in society to bless other people. In fact, there are plenty of women who've never married, never become wives and mothers, just like Jesus never was a husband and a father. And they've been very fruitful. Women like Corey Ten Boom have done great and wonderful things. And that's why the Bible encourages us, especially in 1 Corinthians 7, to not um, somehow value marriage in such a way that we despise those who choose to be single or are single and not recognize their benefit to the body of Christ and their benefit to society. That their fruitfulness, as it says in Isaiah 54, can be like the sons of the desolate one uh, being more numerous than the sons of the married woman, that the fruitfulness of a single person can be just as great or greater than the fruit of a married woman. And so we just have to keep all these things in mind. And let me just bring this down to the last point because there's so much to be said. Um, And you can check my extended notes if you want to hear more about these things. The last category is life giver. And I highlight this because... Ultimately, women are meant to image God. They're made in the image of God. They're meant to tell us something about God, something very important about God. And women are pictured, uh, are the picture that God uses for the church, that the church is the bride of Christ. And if you think about how the Bible talks about the role of the church, the role of the church is the role of giving birth to people. Paul talks about the fact that I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. He uses the idea of giving birth in terms of uh, bearing spiritual fruit. And the, the Bible talks about uh, the fact that the church has been given the keys of the kingdom so that they are, they are used, we are used, the church is used to bring people into a spiritual life. It's a picture of life-giving, and it's associated with the church being the bride of Christ. Augustine could say, he who does not have the church as his mother does not have God as his father. And so there's there's this picture that we have of the church as being life-giving, um, which is so much collect, connected to all that we've talked about so far. So let me just wrap it up, and you can look at the scriptures if you want to, that I've put in the notes that go along with these. But what does all this say about God and salvation through Christ? Number one, God wants us to honor our mothers. Regardless of uh, how sanctified they are, uh, God wants us to honor our mothers. Secondly, God wants us to see motherhood as a wonderful calling. Uh, doesn't mean you can't do things outside the home, but we have to be careful of drinking the Kool-Aid that says motherhood is a second-class kind of thing. Um, 
it's interesting, de Tocqueville, uh, many, many years ago, visited America, and he wrote about it in a book called Democracy in America, and he said this, Now that I am drawing to the close of this work, in which I have spoken of so many important things done by the Americans, to what the singular prosperity and growing strength of that people ought mainly to be attributed, I should reply to the superiority of their women. So de Tocqueville looked at the greatness of America and said, I think it's largely because of the greatness of their women. Next, we could say, God wants us to look at good mothers and see him. So when you see something good in a mother, trace it back to God. Uh, God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Next, God wants us to trust him like a child would trust a good mother. It says in Psalm 139, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Regardless of what's going on, God wants us to be like a child in the embrace of a good mother. God calls women to image him as a life-giving nurturer and how they conduct their lives. And finally, Jesus came to reconcile us to a God who is tender and nurturing like the best mother you can imagine. You don't need to pray to Mary, and you shouldn't pray to Mary, because you have a God, a Father, who is the best mother you could ever have. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, your word. Uh, We've touched on so many things, but I pray that you'd help us to see the heart behind it all, the spirit of it all, Uh, your love for your creation, your love for women, for mothers, and for all that you've designed them to be, and the great and precious uh, thing that they are. Help them, all of our women, all of our mothers, to believe that. Help us as men and, and husbands and fathers to see that and believe that, and to live appropriately. We thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.